On behalf of Pastor Mark Driscoll, we want to thank you for allowing us to bring you Jesus-centered Bible teaching. Like Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus. To get all of Pastor Mark's sermons, blogs, books, and other content, please visit us at markdriscoll.org. There you can also sign up to receive additional free content from Pastor Mark and support this ministry with a gift of any amount. Thank you. God, we begin by uh, acknowledging that, uh, that we are incapable of saving ourselves, that, uh, that we are not the solution, that in every way we are the problem, and that, Lord God, we need you. We need you to pursue us. We need you to find us. We need you to love us. We need you to save us, and we need you to be for us. Otherwise, we find ourselves in irrevocable danger. And so, God, as we study tonight, we pray that we would clearly see Jesus as our Savior. And for that to happen, we ask the Holy Spirit to uh, help make the Scriptures knowledgeable to us and understood by us, and uh, that, Lord God, when all is said and done, that we would have a clearer understanding and a deeper affection for who Jesus is and what He has done to save us. And so we ask these things in His good name. Amen. As you get into this concept of, of a Savior, the the basic definition I want to give you is that a savior is one who rescues us, the hero as it were, from some potential terrible plight. So something bad is going to happen and the savior, the hero, the rescuer is the one who comes in rather and, and saves us from the potential terrible plight. And this concept of a savior has a very long history. The word was actually popular in the days of Jesus a few thousand years ago in Greek and Roman culture and there were politicians who were seen as saviors and they would save the nation. There were philosophers who were called saviors and they would uh, save the intellect and the mind and the ethics of a people. There were gods like Zeus in Greek culture who were seen as sort of spiritual saviors for uh, those who lived on the earth. And that theme of savior was incredibly popular and we'll examine tonight how it later came to be applied to the person and work of Jesus. But it's interesting that that even though uh, a lot of Americans wouldn't say that they're necessarily Christians or don't have a concept of Jesus as Savior, that concept of a Savior or being saved or the experience of some sort of salvation from some terrible plight remains very popular. It's a common theme in a lot of cultural elements that we're very familiar with. Uh, Films, for example... Uh, have the title Saved or Salvation or Savior in them. Uh, There's a comedy called Saved. There's a weird horror film called Sweet Savior. There's a Quaid drama called uh, Savior. And a lot of the films themselves focus on a central character who is essentially a savior. They're coming in to to save people from some terrible plight. Uh, The concept of a savior as well is very common in music. Uh, Savior is the song of a a song title Uh, in works by Bob Dylan, Lisa Marie Presley, 30 Seconds to Mars, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Billy Bob Thornton, all sing Savior uh, as a title of a song. There is also the song Save Me. That's a song title for uh, Dave Matthews, the band Queen, Fleetwood Mac, American Hi-Fi, Aretha Franklin. These, These themes just are perennially popular in pop culture. Trident Comics has a a comic called Savior, and it's interesting that even a lot of the comic book superheroes, whether it's Wolverine or Batman or Spider-Man or whatever you're into, uh, the concept there is of a Savior, that they come in and they save people from terrible plights, and they they rescue people from danger and harm and evildoers, and something in us just yearns for these sort of superhuman Uh, saviors, and so much of our cultural storytelling centers around that theme. In the world of software, there's a software called Savior that I guess will save your hard drive. On TV, there's Law & Order, uh, which has an episode called Savior, and in the great television show 24, one of my personal favorites, Who's the Savior? Jack Bauer. And if you haven't seen it, you can. It's all on DVD, and Christmas is coming, and you could spend that whole week in your jammies catching up on the previous seasons because the new season starts in January. And, and Jack Bauer is the functional savior in the show. I mean, it doesn't matter what happens if you give him a roll of duct tape, a cell phone with magic Holy Spirit batteries that never drain, and a gun, he can take down whole nations all by himself, and he does. 
Uh, and so Jack Bauer is portrayed in that show as a sort of a savior. And even the trailer on YouTube for the upcoming season uses the word sacrifice. And it's showing that the whole world is in danger. And they keep saying, Jack, you need to sacrifice yourself to save others. It's like, wow, they're, they're, they're ripping off this biblical concept of one who is the sacrificial savior to, to, to save many people. Uh, that's our story, and they've sort of adapted it in a culturally appropriate way. Uh, some of you are gamers. You may have played Savior Knight, Vampire Savior, Dark Savior, or in World of Warcraft, you may have obtained the cloak of the Savior. Uh, in fashion, there's a line of jeans called Savior for women. I'm not sure what's saved, but uh, apparently there are Savior jeans. Howard Stern was called the Savior of Satellite Radio. Kanye West was declared the savior of the music industry. And how many of us didn't think that if we just got a little older and reached another life stage, that that would usher in salvation, the eternal kingdom of heaven, that all our problems would go away once we got our license, we could drive away from our parents, uh, graduated from high school, once we graduated from college, got a job, got married, had kids, once those kids moved out of the house. You know, there's these life stages that we sort of cling to as well, like They will be functional saviors. They'll save us from sin and the curse and horror. And once we get there, everything will be better. And what I think is interesting too is every election, candidates are essentially portrayed as saviors, right? Guy comes on, if you vote for uh, my adversary, uh, they will eat you. And uh, they will run over your dog and they get drunk and they drive around elementary school parking lots and they're terrorists, you know, the, the attack ads. But me, I'm your savior. And they have a big smile and, and a flag is blowing in the backdrop and sort of ruddy good looks and nice square jaw and perfectly uh, manicured look. And they are the savior. I'll save you from whatever the terrible plight is. And so sometimes politicians and political issues, political parties, you know, they present themselves as saviors. We will save you from a terrible plight. So just put your vote of trust and faith in us. And what's interesting too is in recent years, uh, drug manufacturers have started marketing directly to us consumers. Makes for some of the most curious television. Uh, some of you TiVo through all the ads. Those are the coolest things on TV. Uh, I love the ads because the ads are pitching pills, medication, essentially as functional saviors. Anything that's wrong, you take a pill and you'll automatically be living in heaven. It all goes away. Even one of the uh, Claritin ads that I saw You know, it shows this person sort of escaping from uh, nasal drip hell, as it were, into walking on green grass, blue sky, white clouds, breathing deeply, salvation, essentially, nasal salvation through Claritin. Uh, And it's interesting that even much of advertising uh, advertises products and people and things as functional saviors. It will save you from some terrible plight. And this concept of salvation and savior also is very common, obviously, in the world of religion. And various religions have various definitions of what our terrible plight is uh, and how we can be saved. But nonetheless, religion is essentially, most all religions are built on the assumption that there is a terrible plight that we need salvation from. We need to be saved from some terrible plight. So if you're a Buddhist, you will be saved by saving yourself through ceasing your desires. If you're a Confucian, you will save yourself through education, reflection, self-cultivation, and moral living. If you are a Hindu, you'll save yourself by detaching from your separated ego and living a life that is unified with the divine. If you're a, a, a Muslim, if you're into Islam, you save yourself by living a life of good deeds. If you're an Orthodox Uh, Jew, you save yourself by repentance and prayer and strict adherence to the laws of God, being an obedient moral person. Uh, If you're in the new age, you save yourself by realizing that all is God and all is sacred and all is one, including all people and all of creation. And by coming into this ideology that you're part of that divine one, you live in harmony with all that is divine and you yourself participate by being divine and through that you will be saved. And if you're into Taoism, you save yourself by aligning with the Tao. That's what we mean when we say go with the flow. That's shorthand for aligning yourself with the Tao. And the result is then you'll have peace inside of you, peace around you, and you will live a peaceful life, thereby ensuring your own salvation. What I find curious is that essentially all religions teach you that there is a savior. That savior is who? It's you. 
You save yourself. Religions teach you that you save yourself. And the religion exists to point out the various things that you should do and should not do so that you can save yourself. This is the exact opposite of Christianity. That's why sometimes to me it's curious if people say things like, well, all religions are basically the same. No, all religions teach that there are ways to save yourself except Christianity, which says that we don't save ourselves, that God saves us through Jesus that he is the savior, that he is the hero, that as we read the Bible, it is not a, a series of commands for things that we must do to earn the love and favor of God. It's the revelation of the person and work of Jesus who came into human history as the savior to save us because we can't save ourselves. And so as we get into this, I want to start by saying that the Bible declares repeatedly that we need a Savior and that there is a Savior and that that Savior is not us, but rather that Savior is God. This is a mega theme of the Old Testament, particularly books like Psalms and Isaiah repeatedly talk about one Savior, one Savior, that Savior being God. I'll look at uh, just a few occurrences at the end of the book of Isaiah. Uh, They are in your notes to just show you what God says about this. And in these verses, God is speaking and God is telling us who the Savior is. And in this, God is confirming that this deep yearning, this cultural desire that we all have for a Savior is good. And we just need to be careful to have the right Savior that we select uh, for that person to be the object of our affection and the source of our hope. And so I'll read some. Isaiah 43, 11 says this. God is speaking. He says, I, even I am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no Savior. So God says, I'm the only Savior. There is no Savior but me. It's just me. Isaiah 45, 21, there is no God apart from me. There's just one God. I'm that God. There is no other God. A righteous God and Savior, there's none but me. God says, there's one God, that's me, and there's one Savior, that's me. God says in Isaiah 49, 26, all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior. God wants all people, all times, all places, all cultures, all religions to know that there's one God and that there's one Savior, and that Savior is God alone. Isaiah 60, 16, God says, you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior. So this is something as well that God wants us to know personally, that he is our Savior. And in Isaiah 62, 11, we are told the Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth, a global truth to be known. Your Savior comes, see his reward is with him. And so at the end of the book of Isaiah, six or 700 years before the coming of Jesus, this theme is repeated over and over and over that there is one God and that that God is our Savior and that that God is coming to save us and that God is coming into human history and that God is bringing with him his reward of salvation. So from that point on, for hundreds of years, people were waiting for the coming of God as their Savior with his reward of their salvation. This leads us up to the time of Jesus. And as we enter into the New Testament, uh, looking at the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, this concept of Savior is inextricably connected to who Jesus is and why Jesus came and what Jesus accomplished. The New Testament speaks of Savior 24 times eight times generally referring to God, 16 times specifically referring to Jesus. And there are other derivatives of that same root word like uh, salvation and save and being saved that are very common throughout the New Testament, all of which are pointing to Jesus. And so what happens is an angel shows up just as God spoke in Isaiah that there is one God and Savior. So then God sends angels to speak on his behalf. Uh, the point of this is we're not dealing with philosophical or religious speculation. We're dealing with divine God revelation telling us who he is and what is going to happen through Jesus. And an angel shows up prior to the birth of Jesus and announces or heralds the coming of Jesus uh, this is what we celebrate at Christmas time. And he says this, the angel does in Matthew one twenty one. She, meaning Mary, who we'll deal with in a few weeks, uh, will give birth to a son and you were to give him the name Jesus. The angel says, Mary's going to have a boy and that boy's name is to be Jesus. And the name Jesus literally means Yahweh God, the God of the Old Testament, the God that Isaiah writes of, 
is our Savior. That's what Jesus means. Yahweh God is our Savior. And so everyone was waiting for Yahweh God to come as the Savior. Jesus comes, and the angel says, His name is Jesus. He is Yahweh God, that promised Savior. Because He will save, the angel says, His people from their sins. So the announcement is made that Jesus is coming through the Virgin Mary. And then when Jesus is born, an angel again shows up and declares emphatically and clearly and distinctly who Jesus is. He is the Savior God. Uh, We're told this in Luke chapter 2, verse 11, by the angel. We are told a Savior, there's our word, has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. So the angel declares that Savior God is coming. And when Jesus is born, the angel says, the Savior God is here. And then in this wonderfully tender portrait of scripture, there's this very godly man, Simeon, who had been waiting many years. He was an elderly man. And he had been awaiting the coming of God the Savior. That was his heart's longing. And when Jesus was born, he was brought to this godly man, Simeon. And Simeon, this grandfatherly figure, as it were, got to hold Jesus the, the baby. And here is what Simeon says in Luke 2, 28 through 30. We're told that Simeon took him, took Jesus, right, the baby Jesus, in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. The angel said, The Savior God is coming. Jesus was born. The angel said, The Savior God is here. Simeon got to hold the baby Jesus and that godly grandfatherly figure upon gazing at Jesus said, thank you, Lord. I can die in peace now. I've seen salvation. My Savior God is here. My Savior God is here. So we've established that we need a Savior We've established that there is a Savior. We've established that God is that Savior. And we've established that that Savior God is Jesus. We'll now examine who does Jesus save. And what I love about this is that Jesus does not appear like the Savior that is offered by other religions and philosophies and spiritualities. Other religions, philosophies, and spiritualities will tell you that that God loves good people or that God loves people of a certain race, or God loves people of a certain nation, or God loves people of a certain part of the earth, or God loves people of a certain language, or that if you really want to know God, you must learn this privileged language because God only really speaks in that language because he has a particular affection for exclusively those people. Some religions are almost exclusively for the rich. You need to have a lot of money to actually participate in those religions. And what we see is that Jesus is the Savior, not of a select minority group of people, but Jesus came to save a multitude of people. And he is a global, multi-ethnic, multinational, multiracial God. Uh, we're first told that he came to save the Jewish people. This is a part of a sermon from the early church in Acts 5, verses 30 and 31. We're told, The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, there's our word, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. Right? It's a Jewish man saying, Jesus is the savior of us Jews. Jesus came into human history, God did, as a Jew. He spoke the language, participated in the culture and the feasts and festivals and, and the worship and the study of Old Testament scripture and such. And so many of the early Christians were converted Jews who saw all of the Old Testament promises about the Savior Messiah as being fulfilled in Jesus. We'll deal with many of them specifically next week. And so Jesus was the Savior. Jesus is the Savior of Israel, of the Jewish people. But he didn't come just for one nationality, one race, or one culture of people. Scripture also says in Ephesians 5.23, Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. That includes people from all kinds of nations and languages and tribes and tongues. So it spreads beyond just the Jewish people, and God has a heart for all 
people in all of his churches. What this means is that what holds us together as Christians, and Christians have differences in worship style, we have difference in some secondary theological issues, but what holds Christians together as the church is if you ask any Christian, they will say, I am a sinner, I need a savior, my savior is Jesus Christ. That's my savior. He's my God. He came to save me. He lived without sin. He died for my sin. He rose for my salvation. Jesus is my Savior God. And today there's a few billion people on planet earth who say that they're Christians, who acknowledge Jesus as their Savior God, and those people comprise the church of Jesus Christ. Some are Baptists, some are Methodists, some are Lutheran, some are Presbyterian. There's different Uh, traditions, there's different distinctives, but Jesus died for the church. He died for all who would receive him as Savior. Uh, Furthermore, we're told in uh, 1 John 4.14, the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And and again, I love this. Jesus doesn't just love one country, doesn't just love one nationality, doesn't just love one ethnicity. Jesus loves all peoples in all nations, past, present, and future. Jesus loves the whole world. And Jesus is Savior of people from all the nations of the earth. And again, this is is distinctive. This is the exact opposite of saying God loves us exclusively. God loves our kind of people. God loves our gender. God loves our race. God loves our language. God loves our culture. God loves our geographic location. God loves our socioeconomic standing at the expense of others. No, Jesus is savior of the world and people from all over the world receive salvation through Jesus as savior God. And it goes on to also say as well, Jesus does in Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. What was lost. See, the, the, the most horrendous thing I could think is that you and I have sinned and we're just lost and God doesn't come looking for us and essentially says, if you can find me, then I'll save you. But that's not actually God saving us. That's us saving ourselves. And that is essentially what religion says. Religion says, you've gotten yourself lost, you get yourself found, you get yourself saved, you get yourself out of the predicament you've gotten yourself into. Well, if you're lost, you don't know what you're doing, you don't know where you're at. Have any of you been that kid who got lost? Any of you been the parent or big brother or aunt or uncle or grandparent who lost a kid? It's the most terrifying thing in the world. Sometimes the kids think it's funny. They're hiding in the clothes rack. Oh, this will be funny. No, it's not funny at all. It's terrifying is what it is. You can't find a kid. But the Bible says that we're kind of like kids and God is our father and we've wandered away from God, our father, and now we're just lost. We're just like kids who wandered into the woods or wandered away from home or got lost in the mall or at the fair and we just don't know where we're at. We don't know where to go. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to find our way out. We're just absolutely lost. And what God does is God comes looking for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus, our Savior, comes to seek and save those of us who are lost, knowing that otherwise we would never be found. We would never be found. And you can imagine somebody's out on a hike in the woods. You know, what we don't say is, well, they got themselves lost. They need to get themselves found. No, we go look for them. Right? God has that same heart. You're lost, I'm looking for you. You need to be found. And also, we're told in 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Paul says, of whom I am the worst. We're sinners. That's why we're lost. That's how we get lost. Rather than obeying God, we turn our back on God, we run away to go do whatever we want. That's why in repentance, we turn back and return to God. But we're sinners. We're all sinners. And this is what just frustrates me. Some people will say, well, you need to save yourself. You need to be a good person. You need to do this. You need to do that. You need the other thing. You need to pray these prayers. You need to go to these places. You need to reincarnate, pay back your debt. All of these things, what essentially is being said is that there really is no hope for the sinners. That God loves the lovely people. That God embraces the good guys. Well, the Bible says there are no good guys. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That none of us could stand before God and say, you should love me. I'm a good person. I'm easy to love. 
We all stand before God and say, I'm a sinner, I'm lost, I've rebelled, I've done whatever I wanted to do, and I didn't obey you, and I need you to save me because I'm my own worst enemy. And see, sin is not something that's just out there. Sin is something that's in me. It's a condition that we have. The myth is that I'm a good person and the world is ruining me and I could tap within my goodness to save myself. The Bible says just the opposite, that I'm not the solution, that I'm the problem, that I can't save myself because I'm the one destroying myself and I need to be saved from myself and my fallen, sinful, crooked, rebellious desires of sin because those lead to death and I'm going to kill myself in one way or another. And the Bible says that Jesus is the Savior, that Jesus is the Savior God, that Jesus comes in to save me, including saving me from myself and my sin. And so for those of you who are here and you're Christians, you you know that Jesus has saved you from sin. Those of us who are Christians would all testify, God has saved us through Jesus from much trouble and many sins. And Paul knows that he has no right to stand before God and say, God, I deserve to be saved. Paul was a murderer of Christians. And Paul knows that he was a corrupt sinner. And some of you know the burden of this. You, you just labor with your own conscience. I mean, there are people here that are ex-pedophiles and ex-rapists and ex-murderers and liars and thieves and cheats and alcoholics and drug abusers and all kinds of sin. People just trapped in sin. And if the rule is Jesus only helps the good guys, then there's really no help for any of us because we are without any hope. But if Jesus is the Savior and he comes to save sinners and he comes to save lost people and he comes looking for those who don't know what they're doing or where they're going, then there's hope. There's hope because the hope isn't in me, it's in him. And so Jesus is the Savior of the Jews and the church and the world and the lost and the wicked And Jesus is the Savior not only of many people, but Jesus is the Savior from many things. I'll give you some examples of what Jesus saves us from. Matthew 121 says, Jesus will save his people from their sins. You think about it. What is Jesus, if you're a Christian, what has Jesus saved you from? What would your life be like if you never met Jesus? What would be different? What would not be different? There are days I think about where I would be if I did not have Jesus saving me, even in the present. What would my marriage look like? Would it even exist? How would I treat my children? What kind of daddy would I be? You know, how would I treat food and alcohol and money? I mean, just all of these issues, I've had to be saved from destruction. He saves people from sins. And this is an amazing thing because we live in a culture where it's, it's almost avant-garde and fashionable to, to sort of accept our sin and declare it to be our personality. And I do believe we have a personality. We can't say, well, I light off fireworks and commit terrorist acts and drive naked and get drunk and, and run over dogs and can't drive a clutch because that's my personality. I'm a high D. You know, it, it just doesn't work that way. But, but sort of we have this sort of excuse like, well, you know, I'm Irish and I'm a high D and, you know, I'm an extrovert. And so, you know, I'm going to shoot you. It, 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 it's sort of an excuse sometimes for sin. We don't need to just accept sin. Well, this is who I am. This is how I am. You need to accept me how I am. Well, I do love you, but but wouldn't it be nice to be saved from sin so we didn't need to just accept it or live with it or tolerate it or manage it or hide it or be ashamed of it or be overwhelmed by it or be enslaved under it? Wouldn't it be nice to be delivered from it to be saved so you don't have to commit that kind of sin anymore and you could go live a different life, a new life? That's what it means to be born again. It's to be saved to such a degree that you get to start over in a very real and practical way. And so Jesus saves us from sin. And what's amazing is sometimes we can stop one sin, but then sometimes we don't get saved from sin. We get saved from one sin to another sin, right? So you stop smoking, start eating a lot, you know, and that's how it, and then you get depressed. So then you drink. You're like, well, I'm not smoking. You're like, but you're big and drunk. I'm not sure that's forward progress that you were anticipating. That's not exactly victory, right? And sometimes you say, well, I've stopped certain sins, and then you get very proud, and we call it self-esteem, and that's a sin too, and you're like, ugh. So now I'm proud of the fact I'm not sinning, but that's a sin. It's just this horrible cul-de-sac. That's what I'm trying to point out, right? The guy who says, I'm doing very well. You're worse than you were. 
because now you're proud. That got Satan kicked out of heaven. That's the big sin. Oh, we can't get saved from sin. It's just this vicious loop. We go from one sin to the next. We rearrange the flesh, but we never get out of the loop apart from Jesus who saves us from sin to new life. Also, Jesus saves us from the wrath of God. I know I'm not supposed to say this. Okay, there's 50 things I'm not supposed to say. I'll get to them all by God's grace. But Romans 5, 9 says that uh, we shall be saved from God's wrath through Jesus. I know you're saying, I don't like wrath. You're not supposed to. It's an incentive to repent. Uh, you know. <laughs> Nobody's supposed to like wrath. And, and we, we, we like to say things like, well, you know, God loves the sinner and he hates the sin. Actually, that's a quote from Mahatma Gandhi, who was a Hindu. So, so don't bank on that as the foundation of your theological framework. Just as an aside. Nonetheless, uh, God is a good God and we're bad people. I'm a bad person. We do think, say bad things. How does God feel about that? Well, bad, which is consistent. And God is unhappy with sin. And you and I, we get unhappy, right? I mean, how many of you are unhappy with the world? How many of you are just like, the world is not the way it's supposed to be. How many of you wake up, look in the mirror and say, that guy right there is not the way he's supposed to be or she is supposed to be. And what we're talking about here is that God is unhappy with sin and God is unhappy with me and God is unhappy with us. And the result is wrath. That's judgment. That's consequence. That is justice. That is holiness at work. The Bible speaks of this hundreds of times. It's a mega theme of scripture. And it says that God's wrath is against us. And that wrath is ultimately experienced in hell, where the wrath of God is poured out as justice for sin. And Jesus, we're told in Romans 5, 9, saves us from the wrath of God. This is amazing. This is a wonderful gift. There is no way in the world that I should escape the wrath of God, that I should escape hell. I'm not a great guy. I'm not a good person. I'm not, you know, morally superior to anyone. None of that. All I can claim is that I've been saved by Jesus. He has rescued me from a terrible plight. That being standing before a holy and righteous God with no excuse and being sentenced to an eternal condemnation which is justly deserved. And we've been saved from the wrath of God. And some of you have struggled with questions like, how could a good God send people to hell? I don't struggle with that. I struggle with how could a good God let anyone into heaven? That's the one that continually perplexes me. If I was God, no one would get in. I mean, you look at what we've done to the earth, I'd be like, they're not coming to my house, that's for sure. You know, me and the angels, it's nice and quiet here. You know, it's simple. We got it all nailed down. But God is a gracious God who saves us. And in Jesus, the wrath of God is diverted and the love of God is given because Jesus lived the life we couldn't live. Jesus died the death we should have died. And Jesus rose for the salvation that is of pure grace. That's the good news of Jesus. He saves us from sin. He saves us from the wrath of God. He also saves us from death. 2 Timothy 1.10, it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, there's our word, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus Christ saves us from death. We don't like to die. We don't want to die. Death is our enemy. But because we all sin, the wage for sin is death, we all die. And Jesus died, and now I don't have to fear death. This is the most liberating thing in the world. My greatest fear is not dying. My greatest fear is rebelling against Jesus. But in dying, Paul says to live as Christ and to die is what? It's gain. That because Jesus died and rose, he conquered death for me. And on the other side of the grave, there is salvation through Jesus and even life beyond death. And so the great enemy has been defeated as we have been saved from that great enemy of death. And lastly, we're saved from Satan. Some of you maybe think now I've talked crazy talk. Let me explain this to you. I think it's very pertinent for the city in which we live. I'll read first from 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10. The coming of the lawless one, right? The acknowledgement of no law higher than me, no law other than me is in and of itself demonic. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed by all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be, there's our word, saved. Here's what it is saying. 
that some people think that they have no need of salvation because they are spiritual. Spirituality can be synonymous with demonism. That's what it's saying. Some of you here today say, I don't need to be saved. I'm a very spiritual person. I see auras, I'm clairvoyant, I have dreams, I hear voices, I have insights, I've met with angels, supernatural beings, supernatural powers, supernatural experiences. I'm a very spiritual person. Spirituality is sometimes nothing more than deception. In the world, there are people who love God and don't. In the spiritual world, there are people who love God and don't. Those who do not love God are demonic. They're evil. They're satanic. They're beings and spirits who masquerade as angels, who pretend to be working for God, but they do not. And so you must be exceedingly careful not to think that by virtue of being a spiritual person that you need no salvation because if you're spiritual in your orientation or your experience, that everything is covered. In fact, it may be covered by Satan, which is of no comfort or salvation whatsoever. It's simply condemnation. I meet so many people who say things like, I am very spiritual. I have all kinds of spiritual experiences. I have all kinds of spiritual insights. I have exercised certain spiritual powers. Well, what about Jesus? Why is that important? I'm very spiritual. Because Jesus is the Savior. And apart from Jesus, you may be participating with Satan and demons and darkness and evil and deception with counterfeit signs, wonders, and miracles. That may include counterfeit healings, counterfeit clairvoyance, counterfeit auras, counterfeit supernatural orientation, power, insight, voices, personalities, all kinds of things. All counterfeit. Masquerading as working for God in a deceptive way. And I'll be honest with you, first 18, 19 years of my life, I was totally lost. I did not know it. I thought I was a good person, realized I wasn't. I was a sinner. There were certain things in my life that I should not have been doing. Uh, Additionally, I was someone who deserved God's wrath and most assuredly was going to die. And I had some weird, supernatural, paranormal spiritual experiences, and for a while they deceived me too. And I thought, well, I had this dream that came true, or I saw this aura, or had this spirit being talk to me. I guess I'm good with God, and I'm spiritual, so that must be okay. And then I realized it was all demonic, and it was all deceptive, and it was all delusional, and it's all deadly. And that Jesus is my Savior, not spirituality, but Jesus. That being said, we'll talk about now not only who is our Savior, Jesus, but who alone is our Savior. It is, it is very acceptable as a general rule in our day to say, Jesus is a Savior. Okay, fine. He works for you. He doesn't work for me. That's your perspective. That's not mine. That's your ideology. That's not mine. Good for you. It is okay to say that Jesus is one of many Saviors. The conflict, the tension, the resistance comes in and always will when you say that Jesus is the only Savior. That's where the rub comes. I'll give you some cultural examples of this sort of pluralism that says it's okay to have Jesus as an option but not the answer. And then we'll look at Scripture on this very debated point. John Lennon said, I believe that what Jesus and Muhammad and Buddha and all the rest said was right. It was just that the translations have gone wrong. It's just sort of a common theme. Some people say all the religions and all the religious leaders say the same thing and the translations are wrong because we're all linguists and we know. Curious statement. Buddha said there were 84,000 paths to enlightenment. Right? Now, that's a lot, right? And how many of you would want directions while driving from a religious pluralist like that. Can you imagine you're driving and you say, I I don't know where I'm going. I want to get to Canada. You pull over to the gas station. You meet a directional pluralist uh, and you say, I want to get to Canada. They said, pick a road, drive on it. They all end up in Canada. You're like, actually they don't. Some go to Mexico, some go in the water, some go to New York, some go to Florida, some go around in a circle, some go to a dead end. no. Just believe. 
it's just interesting that we don't live our lives that way. We don't just pick up the map and say, well, all roads go to the same place. Because they don't. But spiritually, that's essentially what some will tell you. It doesn't matter what road, just get on it and travel. They all go to the same. No, they don't. No, they don't. Right? And not all paths lead to salvation. Jesus said just the opposite. He said, broad is the path to destruction and narrow is the way to life. So choose carefully what path you tread upon. Another example, the great theologian Homer Simpson also said upon his... Homer was going to die. It was a very scary moment. Uh, Homer was going to die. And he said, quote, I'm going to die. Jesus, Allah, Buddha, I love you all. Don't. That's Homer, right? Homer's sort of, he's hedging his bets. Anybody he can think of, he's praying to just in case. Mahatma Gandhi said, all paths leading to God are equally good. All paths leading to God are equally good, Gandhi said. Oprah, the great theologian, declared... One of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there is only one way. It's interesting because that's what Jesus said. One of the humans who said that was Jesus, who said, I am the way. Oprah said, that's one of the big problems. People think like Jesus, they think there's only one way. Actually, she says, there are many diverse paths leading to what you call God. Again, it doesn't matter what path you're on, just journey. They all lead to salvation. say, Really? All the religions, even the ones like Buddhism that don't believe in a God, uh, ones like agnosticism, which say we don't know, atheism, which says there is no God, like they all go to salvation. The road that says there are a million gods in Hinduism and the road that says there's only one God, they all go to the same place. Uh, The roads that say you're the problem go to the same place as the roads that say you're the solution? The roads that say you save yourself go to the same place as the road that says only Jesus can save you? There has always been resistance to the exclusivity, superiority, and singularity of Jesus. I say this not to be cruel, not to be mean, but to be honest. And that in the early church, the reason why Christians were opposed and persecuted and put to death is because they refused to say Jesus is a Savior. They continually maintained that Jesus was the Savior, and that got them in all the trouble. And to this day, Christians, yours truly, get in no trouble by saying there are an infinite number of paths and Jesus is the one that we have chosen, and he is no superior to the options. There is, however, great resistance to declaring with all certainty that Jesus alone is the Savior, that Jesus alone is the path to eternal life, that Jesus alone is the means by which we can be saved from death and hell, and the wrath of God, and Satan, and sin. That it's only Jesus, and that it is all Jesus, and that it is always Jesus. I'll give you one verse. They got many people killed in the early church. It's the part of a sermon in Acts chapter 4. And faithful Christians have maintained this for millennia. Therein we are told in Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else. Let me say that. Salvation is found in no one else. This is exclusivity, superiority, and singularity of Jesus. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. That was the heralding of Jesus. That's why he got killed. That was the heralding of the early Christians. That's why many of them were likewise persecuted and suffered. And for you and I, we must be resolved if we claim the name Christian that Jesus is our Savior, Jesus is our only Savior, and Jesus is the only Savior. And that apart from Jesus, there is no salvation. And apart from calling on the name of Jesus, there is no 
Savior to be had. There is no other name to call on. This is the issue. The exclusivity, the superiority, and the singularity of Jesus as distinct from, superior to, all other potential offered saviors. Christianity really rides in many ways on this fact. And for you and I, we must now come to our own conclusions on this matter. We're not saying anything that Jesus didn't say. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I came to seek and to save the lost. Do you have as your Savior Jesus? That's my question. I don't know all of you. I don't know all of your hearts and minds and lives. I don't know. God knows. It's between you and Him. Is Jesus your Savior? If Jesus is not your Savior, who is your Savior? What is your Savior? Where is your hope? Where is your forgiveness? How will you conquer death? How will you conquer Satan and demons? How will you overcome sin? How will you escape the wrath of God? How will you avoid the eternal consequence? Apart from Jesus, what else is there? Is your hope in Jesus? Is your faith in Jesus? Is your trust in Jesus? Is your salvation from Jesus alone? If it isn't, you need to be a Christian inextricably tied with the concept of Savior is a sense of imminence or urgency or importance that is oftentimes lacking in matters spiritual. If your house is on fire, you need a functional Savior. You need a firefighter, right? If danger is at hand, you call the police. You need the police to come like functional Saviors and to save you from harm and danger and evildoers. Likewise, we're in danger, We're living under the wrath of God. We're living separated from God. There needs to be a sense of urgency that we need a savior. And as we would call a firefighter or a police officer, or we would cry out to a lifeguard in our drowning last breath, we should cry out to Jesus and we should cry out in his name. And so I would just ask you, if you are not a Christian, if Jesus is not your only savior, to take time tonight and to become a Christian to ask Jesus to save you, to forgive you, to take away sin and wrath and condemnation and death and demonic deception and to save you too, a new life as a Christian. And you can do that even quietly in your seat and Jesus is alive in heaven. He knows your thoughts. He knows your, your desires. He knows your heart and he will answer that prayer. And for those of us who are here and we are Christians and we know what Jesus has saved us from, even what he has saved us from individually, Divorce, addiction, despair, terrible life consequences and circumstances. I mean, I get up and I look in the mirror occasionally and I ask myself this terrifying question. If Jesus would not have saved me, what would my life look like? And it's a horrifying thought. If I had my way, I would have done great damage to myself and everyone else around me. And Jesus saves me from myself. And it's a good opportunity for us who are Christians in worship and in gratitude and in prayer to thank God for the things that he has saved us from and is in the process of saving us from. And we respond to him together by taking communion, which is remembering that Jesus is our savior and he has become a human being to identify with us. He has lived without sin. He has died, shed his blood. He had his body broken in our place. He is risen and alive and well today. And we celebrate the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus in communion. If you're a Christian, you become a Christian. We welcome you to participate. We also respond by giving tithes and offerings to help the work of Jesus and the message of Jesus go forth into the city and the world. And then we sing and we celebrate because people who have been saved are people who have much to celebrate. People who have been rescued from danger, the kind of people who sing songs and throw parties and, and, and laugh deeply and sing loudly and are filled with just joy and gratitude that they have been rescued. And worship tonight is in that spirit. It is also done knowing that salvation is not yet entirely complete that in some ways we're also awaiting the second coming of Jesus to conclude the work of our personal and global salvation. I'll end with two verses on that point. Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Titus 2.13, we are waiting for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God, 
Jesus is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're gathered today to celebrate the fact that Jesus has saved us and to celebrate the fact that Jesus is coming again to complete the work of personal and global salvation. And we worship him in that spirit of gladness and gratitude and joy. And I would just beg you as a friend to sincerely search your heart and to ask yourself, do I have any Savior but Jesus? And if so, can it save? Can it truly save? Can it save me from sin? Can it save me from death? Can it save me from God? Can it save me from hell? Can it save me from demonic deception? Can it save me from myself? There is no name under heaven by which we must be saved. Save the name of Jesus, I'll pray. Lord Jesus, we we respond to you. Lord Jesus, we know that we are not the hero, that you are the hero, that we are not the savior, that you are the savior, that we don't fix ourselves, that you fix us, that we don't stand before you declaring that we have no need of you because we are fine on our own. We come to you desperate. We come to you repentant. We come to you humble. We come to you honest. We come to you declaring that we need a Savior. And Jesus, we thank you for being our Savior God. We thank you for caring so much as to come into history, to live, to die, to rise, and one day to come again. We thank you for saving us from sin and death and Satan and wrath and condemnation and hell and all that stands before us and stands against us and all the evil that flows out of us. Jesus, I thank you that you don't just tell us what to do, but you went to the cross and you declared, it is finished. We rest in that and we respond as glad people who have been redeemed and saved to new life so that we might give praise to you and live in light of your love. Amen.